0: Revolutionaries, what's good? Today's episode is brought to you by our good friends at Scotch Porter. Founded by my dude, Calvin Qualis. Scotch Porter is the fastest growing hair and beard care company in the country. About a year ago, my friends started telling me that my skin looked amazing and that my beard looked soft and luxurious. I told them, this is Scotch Porter at its best. To celebrate our partnership... Scotch Porter is offering 25% off of any order, $40 or more, with the code WYR25. With over 26,000 five-star reviews, you can see their clean, non-toxic products really work. In fact, their new hydrating body wash features shea butter, marula oil, and botanicals, and is perfect for all skin types and tones. This offer is exclusive only at scotchporter.com. Now, go grab your grooming essentials and make sure you use the code WIR25 to save 25% off of your order, $40 or more. This offer ends March 31st, 2023, and cannot be combined. Now, let's get ready for the show. What's good, revolutionaries?
1: All of us want to feel accepted for just who we are. I know I have a lot of imperfections, a lot, a lot.
0: A lot. Yeah, you want to learn something, go go, go to the source. 146 shows, 50,000 listens. Can I have your attention for a moment? What's good, What's good, revolution? Welcome to the What's a Revolution show. Show for men and the people who love them where we discuss how men can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. Where people can find and embrace the revolution within themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corporal. What's What's good, good revolutionaries? My favorite, my favorite saying to you, what's good with you? My people, my family, my community. I hope all is well with you and that you are moving through your life, that you are moving through your revolution. Because that's what we've been doing for six years. We have been moving through this revolution, bringing the voices of black men and women as they tell us about how they have traversed various things in their lives to get on the other side revolutionaries, to get on the other side of themselves, to get on the other sides of their communities, to figure out how to sit in the gaps of the world so that we as a people can live better lives. 146 shows, 50,000 listens. Top 10% globally in all of the podcasts. And it's not just because of the work that Sarah and Seiko do. Because you have supported this show. You have gone in week after week after week and listened and said, you know what? I want to hear more. As my good friend Monique Harp says, every time that she listens to the What's Your Revolution show, it expands her mind. It opens something new for her. It gives her life. That's what this show is for. It is for the people to help those folks who are trying to find what the answer is to their lives and that it begins with, what's my revolution? What am I trying to change with my life? Where can I go? And they've come here. You've come with us. You've come on this journey. So first, I want to say thank you for being here with me and my team a part of this journey for six years. And I always have to give a shout out to my forever producer, Rachel Graham, and to the first people, Susan Henry, and my dude Jazz for saying, you know what? We want to put this show on the air at WBOK on Wednesdays at three o'clock when really nobody was listening to where we are now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And to celebrate all of these accomplishments and to look back at the year that we had, we've put together a compilation of what I think is the most informative and thought-provoking conversations that I had during the the year. It's not all of them. It's not a complete anthology of all the wonderful conversations, but it's things that I think that we can pull out and move into our revolution immediately. From folks like Larry Irvin, Ted Talk Sensation, and the brother who just got, I don't even know, X amount of dollars from Mackenzie Bezos, because his revolution was to ensure that we could put more black men in the classroom but it's interesting as larry comes on the show and in this clip he talks about what it means to actually show up in the world what does it mean to take up space in the world enjoy this clip with my dude my guy ceo and founder of brothers empowered to teach larry Irvin. Wow.
2: Uh, I don't think I've ever been asked that question
0: like that. Like, you, you, you know, you know what I'm you know what yeah, I'm talking about. Definitely. I definitely know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Oh
2: uh, I think it was a progression. Um you know, I think the gravitas is there. I don't know how to I don't know if I would categorize it as a as a negative or, or, or positive. I think I transitioned to it. I think it definitely started. Um I think I'll say my me developing. That 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 gravitas and that charisma definitely came from a negative space. I think it came from a, from a space of uh, you know, my, my I, have a, I have a colorful story. Uh, people know my story. You know, or uh, those who know who know uh, know. You know, when I started Brothers in Power to Teach, you know, I was uh, I was coming off the second of uh, two gun and college charges. You know, what I mean that I caught mm-hmm. uh, in New Orleans and. Um, but I also had a, you know, very positive foundation with my mom being an educator and things of that nature. So academically, I've never, I've never really was behind or, or didn't excel academically, but I did have, have a, uh, for lack of a better description, a street, uh, experience because of the, the the constituents that I, that I was around, whether it was neighborhood or just constituents. about what have you. Right. So, and you develop a level of, I will say to be completely transparent, you develop just navigating navigating streets, navigating different uh, cast different cast of characters, um, in different situations. You develop a level of uh uh, uh communication skills. I'll definitely say, um, and a level of presence. You know that I think just and being able to read a room. You know, um, and really pick up on you know uh who your audience is and how to deliver that particular message to that audience. You know, so. Um, but I think the transition just come, just came as far as having an impact positively. I think it just being been around, you know, changing changing my environment. Charles, just being around a Dr. Charles, being around a, 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 a Dr. Flint, being around a Ethan Ashley, being around a Greg Rattler, being around, uh, you know, an uh, uh, Emil Dwyer, a Deirdre Burrell, right. um, having these conversations with folks, uh, Lynette Gilbert. Um, and I think all of those experiences sort of subsequently just uh took that same energy um that was developing a different space and just uh gave me an opportunity to really hone it um or in a concentrated uh way to where i can focus on taking sort of this negative backdrop um and using it to catapult uh an organization that's ready to have amazing impact
0: mm, mm. Think, think think about what he just said revolutionaries being able to sit in rooms with other people that you admire. That's what, that's what it sounds like, Larry. Yeah. I don't I want to put word, words in your mouth and, and, and that litany of folks that you just named are the are those prolific leaders that are down in New Orleans who are doing amazing things, right? We can go from organization to organization to politician to politician, right? Yeah, the list goes on. The list goes, goes on. So, the, the the pullout in that, Larry. It sounds like that if if you don't feel like you can walk into a room and take up space, sit in a room with people who already take up space and learn what they do.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah, if you want to learn something, Go 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 to the source. It's, it's, it's that simple? Put yourself, you know, put yourself in position uh, and in those environments and in those spaces um, with people that's replicating what you want to be. It's really that simple? Mm-hmm. And uh, you pick up mm-hmm. on your cues, like they say all the time. Um, you know, a lot of great leaders say, you know, you show me your friends, I'll show you, i show you your future. Um mm-hmm. it's so true. It's so true. And you, you and you can't help but you know, uh, if you want it, which I really wanted, t- 2014 was really a push a year for me. Um, because I really, really want to change having the bury, uh, my cousin Danny having a bury Rashad, um uh, back to back, you know, um one getting gun down, uh an eight wall, the other a uh, heroin overdose. Um I want to change, y'all. I want to change, I want it fast. Um, so I think that piece had to be there. Um, you know, you know, um, I had moments of clarity, right? Carrying these caskets, man, like asking myself, like, why not me? You know, um, Mm. and it was just, that was just highlighting sort of that, 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 that window for that year. And it all sort of happened. And, you know, I was going through that while I was entering Keller, you know what I mean? So it was all happening at the same time. And Keller, like I said, at the time, it couldn't have been better because I really, really wanted change. So I, I really embraced um, and maximize my experience in that space around the the, the Dr. Corpus and what have you. Um, but a sense of urgency. I attacked it with a sense of urgency, squeezing the orange, getting everything I could because I really, really wanted something different. Really, really wanted something different, something different, something different.
0: You know, it's interesting to think that you grow up in the world, and for some of us, I can't say all of us, you grow up with a, a father figure. You grow up with someone that you can look back at when you're moving out into the world. It's interesting that fathers can push us into the ocean, but they stay in the water to make sure that we're there. And that's what my father did for me. He pushed me out into the ocean, gave me the tools to swim. But oftentimes, as I look back at the shore, I could see him right there, steady, saying I am your lighthouse. And when you need a way home, I am right here with you. I am your light. And that is what Charles S. Corporal Jr. was for me. He was my light. And in times he was my rudder. He steered me in the direction that I needed to go gave me away and so I want to thank you dad I want to tell you that I love you every day and that I miss you so much my guest author Ramal Toon came on in an opportunistic time in my life when I needed I needed to be cathartic about my father's death interestingly enough his book his book His book, his book, I wish my dad was so eloquent and so timely in my life. But it's so interesting that his revolution is so powerful that when I asked him this question, I was taken aback. His revolution was how do we show up in a world without our trauma? Think about that, revolutionaries. What's that like? Enjoy this opportunity to listen to Ramal talk about how do we get there? How do we find our way past our trauma?
3: My revolution is to become the best iteration of myself that I can possibly become in my lifetime. And that is answering the question of who I'm who am I without
0: my trauma? Wait. <laughs> Brother, like you don't have to punch me that hard so quickly on this show, right?
3: Hey, if it's gonna be a revolution, it's gotta be revolutionary, right?
0: Man, man, revolutionaries. Did you did you hear that? Right? You've you've heard you've heard 141 answers to this question, right? 141 answers. And I need to reiterate that, right? What is the version of me without my trauma? (laughs) Unpack that, right? That could be the show right there. But uh, uh, unpack that because it is a beautiful, beautiful answer. My God, Ramal, what does it look like to be the version of yourself without your trauma? Oh, please, please. I'm going to sit back and listen.
3: Yeah, you know, when I think about becoming the best iteration of myself that I could possibly become in my lifetime, to finish this story and be able to look at my journey, look at my truth and how I lived out my life and say, I, I did the best I could and I finished on empty. Um, in order to do that well, I got to look at. What um, what are the narratives that have shaped my life or, you know, yeah. am I living as a character trapped in somebody else's play with, you know, my the trauma of my life, you know, orchestrating my life, the the challenges of my childhood, my mom and her battle with addiction and depression, my uncles and the things that they taught me about survival in the hood, um, you know, the panhandling as a kid because I didn't have money, the hustling in order to get money, um, the verbal abuse uh, that I experienced, you know, from people who thought they were trying to teach me to toughen up and be strong with these survival skills, not realizing that they didn't have the tools to teach me what was needed in order to thrive. They were teaching me how to survive because their assumption was that if this is where you're going to live, there are certain skills that you need to have. And we've decided based on our life experiences that these are the things we're going to teach you in order for you to survive. Um, however, as, as life would have it, I chose thriving. And the skills that I took with me on my journey to design a life of thriving were skills that were only needed to survive. And so Mm -hmm. I was constantly um, making mistakes, um, even when new opportunities were presented, because I was taking survival skills into thriving environments and um, unbeknownst to myself. Um, So if I look at my story and accept the fact that... um, There were the economic challenges. There were the dynamics, the trauma of living in poverty. There was the trauma and dynamics of being a black male in the inner city, Um, drugs and violence around me, a mom with addiction and the verbal abuse and watching the harm she did to her own life. And even before she was an addict, how she was thriving and then became an addict after she was successful. And then we lost everything. And so now as an adult, <clears throat> I I realized through therapy that I was carrying a lot of anxiety, a lot of PTSD, um, a lot of self-doubt, you know, self-esteem issues, um, defining my life based on the fear that one thing, one day things will go wrong, because most examples I saw from adults in my life, eventually things went wrong. And so I internalized that belief that it was always the anticipation of the next shoe that's going to drop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and that's a constant anxiety in in my body. And so in going to therapy and revisiting those narratives that have shaped me, um, I had to detach who I truly am from those experiences. They are a part of my life, but they don't have the right to shape the entirety of my life. And so who am I without my trauma is is a journey of shedding those fears, anxieties, and doubts um, carrying the lessons and the wisdom as tools to keep my eyes open for opportunities to help other people like me overcome as well—not just overcome the environment and the circumstances, but overcome the um, the emotional aspects of it and the mental aspects of it—to um, to find ways to surrender that pain. Um, you know, as a person of faith. Um, one of my favorite scriptures is Isaiah 61 3. God will give you beauty for ashes and knowing that that's an exchange to surrender that those ashes to receive beauty. And so this, who am I without my trauma is really about a journey of surrender, um, surrendering the ashes in my life in order to receive the beauty that was always destined to be mine and and allowing myself to be courageous enough uh, to let that beauty and that love in um, and humble enough and vulnerable enough to let go of the things that
0: don't serve me well. Man, who um, are you so telling me about that? Yeah, yeah. Brother, brother, I, I definitely appreciate that because we talk so much on this on on the show about right, the first tenet of revolution, right? Personal revolution is revolting and evolving into the person that you want to be. Right. But you have to have an idea, right, of what that what that evolution down the road is going to look like. And if you don't, right, and you're thinking about I want to be the the iteration of me, right, is the person that thrives without my trauma. Right, and so I've got to revolt. I've got to shed, right? I've I've got to shed, right? The the trauma and and the, and and the survival behaviors that go along with this. But what I want to pull out of this for a second, Ramal, is that you talked about bringing survival tactics into thriving tactics, right? And so folks want to hear about what does that look like? Because they may not know what a survival, they may think, well, this is a thriving tactic, but it's actually a survival tactic. Can you give me an example of where you brought a survival tactic into a thriving environment and how, You know, how you realize, oh, I'm just, this is surviving and it's actually disallowing me to thrive. Yeah,
3: I think one of the key, one of the big survival tactics that I took with me into my professional life was always showing up defensive, always Mm -hmm. um, guarded, and um, intentionally walking into any room feeling unsafe, right? Mm -hmm. Unsafe that to the extent that people, uh, the assumption that people are going to take advantage of you, the, the assumption that every person is a potential threat, um, you know, stay guarded, stay on, um, stay very measured in your words um, because, uh, you know, people can't be trusted. Um, that that all of those ideas um, do not lead to being a person who is thriving. Um, yes. yes. They keep you... Um, They put you in a place, or I found that they, let me speak about this personally, they put me in a place of not only not letting people see me, but also not allowing myself to be fully seen.
0: As you all know, I talk so much about my time in New Orleans and my people I actually think that New Orleans probably should give me some residual as much as I talk about it on the show because New Orleanians are some of the most passionate, caring, loving people. My guest, Dr. David Wallace, CEO and founder of Dream House Lounge, comes on the show to talk about something that's so important to us. We hear it all the time. I need to have more self-care. I need to take care of myself. I need to rest. But Dr. Wallace and his eloquence and his belief in moving past self-care, not only taking care of our mental and our physical, his belief is that we need to move from self-care to soul care. In this riveting clip Dr. Wallace details what it looks like for us to be fully engaged in healing and loving our souls. We hear this so much, Dr. Wallace, that... Mm-hmm. that. Self-care, and we're pushing on on folks, like, how are you taking care of yourself, right? Self-care, self-care, self-care. And oftentimes, particularly for people of color and particularly for men of color, we don't even know what that looks like. It's not a term that we are socialized to have in our arsenal, right? You know what I'm saying? But the one thing that I realized that rest is revolution, dear brother. And what happens when we rest? Right. Mm. We think about the we think about the 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 metaphysical acts and the physical acts of what rest does to our body, what good sleep does for our bodies. What happens is, right here comes now. Now we got two two really really smart brothers on the you know on the (laughs) conversations right talking about. But sleep is rejuvenation, right? Our brain washes itself right you think mm-hmm. about that our brain actually washes the toxins of the day all and and the waste comes out of the brain when we have good sleep your gut actually rejuvenates itself during rest what happens mm-hmm. the toxins it 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 begins to rid itself of all of the bad things when we rest what happens is is that when we don't and, and, and I'm sure Dr. Uh, Dr. Wallace can confer, is that when we don't rest right all right, the 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 levels of cortisol build up in our brain right cortisol is the stress stress hormone that builds up in our brain and what happens is that the body reacts to that we begin to gain weight right we, our, our body begins to hold on to weight because in this stress, the stress the predation right uh, right we're thinking that predate the predators so i must hold on to weight to make sure that i i have all of the energy to fight predation Right. Mm. That's not how we're. That's not how we're built. Right. Our mm-hmm. gut. Right. Our, our gut begins to change when we're stressed. Right. The microbial aspects are begin to change, and it's harmful for our body. Rest okay. is revolution. Revolutionaries. I want you to understand that. And thinking about when we rest and we have the ability to sit still, I feel like I'm on I'm on like I'm I'm in front of my parishioners right now, Dr. Wallace. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm like, yes, 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 yes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but what happens when we rest and we have the ability, as my good friend Reggie Hammond says, right, CEO of Active Peace Yoga, our mind has the ability to create. Mm-hmm. To think about that, right? And if we talk about soul care, as Dr. Wallace was just saying, through liberation, our mind at peace has the ability to say, who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Who do I want to revolt and evolve into, revolutionaries? And, but if your mind is not peaceful, you cannot soul care. Is
4: that correct, Dr. Wallace? I oh, hardly agree with that. I think that, <laughs> I think you just like broke it down and that could be the 11th life lesson in my book. I should have wrote about rest. (laughs) The importance of rest, but no, I I think that it is like pivotal to start the conversation there because um, we have a lot, we as black people carry a lot of generational trauma. We as black men carry a lot of societal trauma. And when we don't even realize we're carrying it. I think that's when yeah. it's the most like invasive and most predatory. Mm-hmm. And yes. so, this idea of taking moments to rest so that your body can rid itself of those toxins, I think, mm-hmm. is like is incredible and then very yeah. very important.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's let's do a double click on what you said. What does soul care look for you? look like for you and how do you how do how do my revolutionaries think about soul care from you know if they're if they're thinking about you know the the ministry of Dr. David Wallace from a soul care through liberation
4: perspective what does that look like I'm a spiritualist first and so mm-hmm. um, I always give honor and thanks to God my ancestors and the orishas particularly orisha shango who I'm initiated under. um, I practice the traditional African faith, IFA, Mm -hmm. from the Yoruba uh, tradition, which is present-day Nigeria. And when I think about soul care, I think about uh, meditative practices. Mm -hmm. I think about holistic healing. I think about using herbs to clean the body of energies, Um, using herbs to clean your space of energies, Um, using herbs to set the energy, in your mm. space um, and using herbs to set the energy for your mind by and spirit. Quite frankly, right before I got on this call, I cleaned myself off with some Florida water because I just <laughs> like had like a crazy morning and mm. dealing with clients and things like that. And I'm like, all right, I got to get this energy off of me so that I can be present mentally, right. physically, and spiritually for this call uh, because it's just that important to me. And so when I think about soul care, I think about taking advantage of those opportunities to check in with your soul, check in with your consciousness, to think about how you're feeling, to think about how you're showing up into spaces, Um, and if you need to course correct. For me, it is not uncommon for me to like pause and meditate in the middle of the day. And it's not uncommon for me to do some deep breathing exercises after I've gotten off of a particularly challenging call with a client. Um, And so when I think about self-care or soul care, I think about like constantly checking in with yourself to make sure that you're good. Um, And that also might look like looking in the mirror and say like, do I feel good about myself? Like, do I look good? Do I, uh, are my teeth white? <laughs> or like, and I know that's like, more the like vain aspects of it, but uh, the reality is like the way you show up in spaces is like how people are gonna perceive you. But there's also like the way you show up in spaces dictate how uh, successful you can be in spaces, dictate right, right. Um, what you get out of spaces. And so I'm always trying to check in with myself Um, Before I go into different spaces So that's a version of soul care For me as well Well, well. (laughs) Soul care man Soul care What happens
0: when our soul is full But our bodies Are not You can't have soul care Unless you're actually taking your Meds M-E-D-S-S As my boy As my dude As my guy, Dr. Travis Batts World-renowned cardiologist Comes on the show to talk about What it means to actually, actually Take care of our hearts Our physical hearts Think about that Cardiovascular disease Diabetes High blood pressure All of the Number one, number two And number three killers of men of color What do we need to do? Dr. Batts actually gives us the antidote, gives us the reason why we need to go see our doctors, why we need to have community with other men to tell the stories of why we should go to the doctor, what we should do, what we should ask, right, what tests we need. Dr. Batts gives us the roadmap So enjoy and make sure that you are putting these tools into your belts and you're actually going to see your doctor we don't need any more deaths we need more life we need more life we need more life my understanding is, 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 is cardiovascular disease high blood pressure, diabetes are some of the leading causes of death in our communities and particularly cardiac, car, cardiovascular disease talk about that right how did we get to this place where cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death for our community,
5: for black men? So great question. And again, this is where I, I shift into kind of kind of Dr. Bass mode because this is where the rubber hits the road. So since we've been talking, we've been talking about 15, 17 minutes, right? How about this? Get, wrap your head around this and I'm going to pause. Every 36 seconds, every 36 sessions, someone dies from cardiovascular disease Mm. since we've been talking almost 40 people have died period and when you think about that understand that african americans african american males are 30 percent more likely to die from heart disease than their white counterparts period put a period right there when you look at hypertension more likely to have hypertension more likely 60 percent more likely to have hypertension that is uncontrolled Right. And so when we, when we start to add these things, because I tell people it's not a one hit phenomenon. It is the underlying genetic predisposition. Right. And th- there's this uh, and, and I won't get too deep, but uh, there is a, uh, a doctor out of and his name escapes me out of Baltimore that I was talking to him about how difficult it is to manage hypertension in our community. And he said, well, understand that hypertension is to some degree or some discussions an effect of the middle passage, because mm-hmm. when you think about yeah. being, you know, uh, deprived of water for so long, it's those people that can navigate sodium and salt over that, and that could survive in those temperatures. That now we we have the ability to have water and sodium and those type things, and so it's this sub-selected uh, population that we think that might be what's one of the drivers. But when we look at that one piece, right, that doesn't have to be your outcome. And it's through changing those behavioral norms that unfortunately have been some ingrained, but in many cases, shifting that paradigm to a place where you can say, okay, that's not going to be my reality. I'm going to look at this because I tell my patients, it's not, you know, they'll come in and they say, well, it's, I'm going to date myself. It's my Levi's. And I, and I'll tell them that. They'll be like, what's that? I said, that means your genes, right? Your genes have something to do with it. <laughs> I was it like, no, what? You got, you <laughs> like your Levi's. Hold on. You, it's your Levi's, right? So your genes have something to do with it. But then there are other contributing factors that we call modified. Risk factors. You can't do anything about your parents but you can do something about the choices you make in the grocery store the choices you make to walk that extra block or park a little bit farther getting enough sleep you know building yourself around positive things reducing the impact of you know risky substances whether that be you know tobacco abuse alcohol abuse or anything like you have the ability to change those things and so that's really where I meet people because by the time people see me and I'm trying to change this mindset in the primary care sense because by the time they get to me and they all have the diagnosis of heart disease. It's it's not impossible. I have seen it reversed and we'll talk about that a little later when we talk about a, a plant-based diet, but I have seen it reversed, but that is more the exception than the rule. And so my goal is to catch that six year old. Or to catch Mm -hmm. that eight year old as they start to make decisions and the shift from what we call primary prevention. And so, and again, so we, we in cardiology, in the preventive space, we used to only think about prevention in three tiers, right? Primary prevention means you identify somebody with risk factors, whether that be high blood pressure, family history, these type things, right? You identify risk factors. Secondary prevention means you've already had an event and we're trying to reduce short, intermediate, and long-term sequelae, Mm -hmm. right? You've had your heart attack and now we're trying to decrease your risk of having a secondary. Tertiary prevention means we're kind of on the back end. You've had recurrent events and now we're trying to mitigate symptoms for your long-term overall benefit. But one place that we don't speak a lot is about primordial prevention. Mm. And what primordial prevention is, is before you have the risk factors, right? If I know you come from a family where everybody has diabetes, why not have a conversation with that six, 10 year old about making healthier choices about what sugars to eat and how to navigate their diet in that way before they end up falling into that genetic spiral? And I think in our community, there's this construct of, well, this is how it is. This is how it's always been. But it we always don't been. Right. We can change that mindset. Right. And and again, I won't delve too much into COVID unless you but, but COVID highlighted, especially yeah, I mean, in New Orleans, where we it. looked at um, this whole risk versus race. Right? There's a nicely articulated article that um, from Osner Clinic down in uh, New Orleans where they talk about um, if you took every, all comers that came in and you normalized for uh, socioeconomic status, risk factors, how were their outcomes in the context of COVID? Because we know that African-Americans are two and a half times more uh, likely to be hospitalized, four times more likely to die, five times more likely to be in the ICU. But if you normalize for all those modifiable risk factors, guess what? The outcomes were the same what exactly and those are the things that we have the ability to change and impact right and so that's why for me um you know we talk about purpose and uh there was one of your guests that talks about if you can accomplish your purchase alone it's too small well i can't do dr. this by anthony, myself
0: dr anthony Purdue. that's it yep that's, that's right it. dr right? anthony Purdue. You know, so. Doc, you know, it's interesting to think as, as I hear as I hear you talking about, right, that if, if we're if we're trying to be proactive with our health, right and and what we're putting in our body and how we're taking care of ourselves, I kept looking, you know, I kept thinking like I, I grew up. I drank a gallon of milk a day of <laughs> dairy milk, right. You know, and 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 brother, uh, brother Turnip Vegan was you know on my show a couple of weeks ago, and he was like, "We're the only, we're the only animal that drinks another animal's milk for sustenance." Right, right. Can you imagine, right? For sustenance, right? Right. That's full of cholesterol, that's full of uh, uh, factors that are going to inflame your body. You got it. Right, every day, you know, and my mother is dealing with a debilitating arthritis and a couple Mm of days ago, doc, she just, I mean, her arthritis was just flared up. And I was like, what did you eat the day before? She'd eaten a taco salad full of cheese, full of dairy, right? Cheese, whipped cream, all the things. And so for days after this, she was in like debilitating pain. And so thinking about, like, think definitely thinking about that, like, what do we put it like, what do we put in our bodies? But I, I love that conversation that we've got to move it back, right? Right. We've got to move it back. But let me ask this question before, because I'm, ha- you know, it's a hard thing to move out of the generational diet. diet. In one of the more riveting conversations of the year, I sat down with my good friend and my frat brother, Eddie Richardson, former track star, to talk about as he as he talks, as he describes As the fight of his life, diagnosed with prostate cancer in his mid-40s, Eddie comes on and talks about what this fight looked like and what the fight continues to look like for him. And I promise you, you will be on the edge of your seats as he details what it was like to get his diagnosis, how his family jumped in to support him, How his community surrounded him. Giving him the tools that he needed to make sure that he was winning the fight of his life. This is, as I said, one of the most riveting edge of your seat conversations. Because I promise you, after listening to this, you will know how to save your life mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. This is a must listen, revolutionaries. You were diagnosed with prostate cancer. We talked about this at 45 years old, right? And you said 56, man, the brother looks good. But at 45 years old, you've got the world in front of you. You've got a family, you know, you're you're a robust man of omega. You're out in the world making change and impact. And the one day you walk into the doctor's office and the doctor says, Brother Richardson, you have prostate cancer can you walk us through that journey the before getting the diagnosis and the after what was that like for you
6: I can but let me just share this as well and, and I, I didn't um, I didn't put this in my bio but my wife is also a cancer survivor mm. um, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2004. Wow. wow and so that was three years after our son EJ and so mm. I was her caregiver. Yes. And was yes. her accountability partner. And so I went through those experiences firsthand with her um, as we went through that journey. Yes. And so um, she's doing exceptionally well. She hasn't had any relapses um, since. And so um, the day that um, I was diagnosed um, with, with prostate cancer, it, I mean, it, I felt like the world just dropped um, wow. I, it, it's a, it's a, a strange story. You know, I was one that was vigilant about going to the doctor and life got in the way and I missed two years of physicals. Wow. And my father passed in 2011. And as we were sitting around the table, making arrangements for my, for my father, it hit me, Eddie, you haven't been to the doctor. Mm. And so at the conclusion of making those um, arrangements, I walked out of the funeral home and called and set my appointment. Yeah. And um, I went and I had my full physical. And when I got my um, PSA results, um, they were they were alarming. And that's the prostate specific antigen results. Um, you know, my, my PSA, normal PSA is usually are two or below for men. Um, my last one was a 1.8, um, at the last appointment that I had. And so, um, at this physical, it was 12.2. Wow. Which was very concerning. And this was, this was two years that, um, that this had, had occurred. Um, and so I, I immediately, um, I talked to my wife and I said, we've got a we got to get to a urologist and see what's going on. Yes, and so um, we went to a urologist, and he said, "Well, you know, initially, don't be alarmed." He said, "We're gonna um, have you come back in, in you know, sixty to ninety days, and we'll we'll check it again. Um, it may just be, um, you know, proselytitis or some inflammation, but we'll you know we're gonna check it and see." And so I went back for the follow up, and um, it had gone to thirteen three, so it had actually increased from 12.2. And so, um, we did a biopsy and, um, when they do the biopsy, they, they segment your, you know, prostate into um, six sections. And so they evaluate, um, where there is cancer, you know, to see where there is cancer. And I had, um, cancer evident in five of the six sections of my prostate that they had, um, had looked at. And so, um, you know, at that point, um, we made some decisions and talked about some options and, and I made the decision that I wanted to have, um, what's considered a radical prostatectomy. I wanted to have a surgery. And so, right. um, I scheduled my surgery within about 120 days from when
0: I gotcha. had- Eddie, can I, I, I hate to, there's mm-hmm. so much that I want to um, unpack there before we move yeah. on to the rest of the story, <laughs> because I can hear, I can hear my revolutions in my ear, like, wait, 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 He. Five of the six sections had had cancer. You went from one point eight to twelve point two to then thirteen point three. Did you feel any symptoms did it did anything feel wrong did were you was was there blood blood in your urine? were you having you know bone pain were you i mean were you having difficulty yearning what was there anything that said
6: that this was going on in your body? Brother, I had absolutely no symptoms. Wow, none.
0: Mm. And th- and that's the scary thing about this disease, right? The scary thing about this disease, you're going al- you're going along in life, right? And nothing, uh, a- almost silent. If you don't go and get your PSA checked, and it used to be, and I know one of the stigmas around why why brothers weren't going to get their their prostates checked because it was the DRE. Right. It was the digital rectal exam. Right. And and, right. When I say digital, it's not an electronic. It is this. It is your digit. It is your finger. It is urologist finger. Right. Right. Going up your behind. Right. To massage your prostate. Right. For it to secrete so they can then test. Exactly. So I, I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad they've come up with a revolutionary way to test it through your blood. But I know many men in our old masculinity were like, no, nah, ain't nobody, ain't nobody sticking there anything anywhere so they can test. So I'm just right. going to go, all right. Yeah. So right. so thank you for saying that, that there were no symptoms of this. There,
6: there were no symptoms at all. And I'll say this as well, you know, while I was going through the process of, you know, getting the exam because my, my, my physician, um, you know, he advocated for that. You know, I thought of prostate cancer as an older person's disease. You know, and it wasn't until I was diagnosed that I realized that there was a prevalence of prostate cancer, a higher prevalence of prostate cancer in African American men. And so while yes. the baseline in science may say 50 for African American men, there's a lot of literature that says that they should start at 40. And if there's family history in which I did not have family history, you know, a lot of times some of the literature out there will say that it's, it's paternal. So if you, if your father or your uncles on your father's side, someone on your father's side of the family has prostate cancer, there's a higher evidence of that. I, my dad, my dad died of congestive heart failure. Mm. Um, didn't have issues with, with prostate cancer. Um, so it was a complete shock um, that um, I, that I was diagnosed, and um, you know, if, if you know, in, in being here in the area, and I've been, you know, uh, with good uh, brother Charlie Hill, who's the head yes. of Hampton Roads Prostate Health Cancer Forum here in Hampton Roads, there is a higher prevalence of men, of African-American men being diagnosed with prostate cancer in any other area of the country.
0: Wow. Which any
6: reason for that? Any, 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 any yeah. correlative
0: variables that might indicate why? We can't is figure it, is, is out. Is it in the water? Something in the water? I know. <laughs> we can't figure it Man, out. I'm not drinking that water. It, I'm not it, drinking it, that water anymore.
6: It was, it was a strange thing to me. And then you know, we were part of a pro- pilot project with the Hampton University, um, Proton Therapy Center um, and uh, the Prostate Cancer Forum a few years ago, just trying to do a pilot project and educating men on that. And when I saw those statistics, it just kind of blew my mind that um, there was a higher... And and I don't know if that's because there is more advocacy here and there are more African-American men that are going and actually getting tested. And so the data is trending that way? I don't know, and more men are finding out that they have it, or if it's something that's organic that it was causing it. I, I'm just not right. sure. But so again, that's, yeah, um, that's
0: so many. That, that's so interesting to me.
6: My, you know, my um, diagnosis was a complete shock.
0: Wow, wow. So let's 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 move the conversation back. Yeah. You said five of the six sections were cancerous, okay? Cancers, and you and you. Right. And And so you decided to have a prostatectomy. So go ahead. Talk, talk about that. Talk about this next phase of the journey for you.
6: Sure. Sure. And so, you know, what they do is, you know, when they evaluate your prostate and when they find cancer, um, they give you what's called a Gleason score. And so that's Mm -hmm. based on the amount of of cancer that is found. And Mm -hmm. so the higher the Gleason score, um, the more likelihood that the uh, the cancer may be more aggressive. And there's an opportunity or likelihood that the cancer may have spread outside of the prostate. Mm. And so basically the timetable for making a decision as to what your actions are going to be are based on that Gleason score. And so uh, my Gleason scores are fairly high. And so, um, again, we wanted to give uh, my body an opportunity to heal from the biopsy, which yielded the, the cancerous result. Um, so we did my surgery probably like I said, about 120 days or so from the time that, um, I had my biopsy, um, we scheduled the radical prostatectomy. And so, um, we did it with a machine called Da Vinci machine. And so, mm-hmm. um, there were five ports that were put into my abdomen and, um, and so the physician removed my, uh, prostate using that procedure. It's a fairly common procedure and, and a number of brothers, um, you know, continue to use that procedure that, um, you know, now, but depending on where you are in the country and depending on the access to technology, I mean, there are probably a dozen or more different therapies or different treatments for prostate cancer. Some gentlemen don't want the surgery. Some gentlemen may want to, to do radioactive seeds mm-hmm. or right, they may exactly. want to do radiation, or you know, here we have the Hampton University uh, Proton Therapy Center, and so um, you know, some gentlemen um, you know pursue proton therapy. It just depends on personal choice. For me, with my age, um, my physician advocated for um, the the surgery. Mm-hmm. To you know, give me an opportunity to try to spare some of the muscles that you know control the penis because yeah. you know, depending on the type of surgery, yes. it damages the nerves that are around the penis, and so functionality is one of those things that mm-hmm. becomes an issue. And so, you know, for some gentlemen, they're like, "Oh no, oh no, <laughs> exactly, you are not oh no, uh-huh. going to do anything that's going to damage that member." And right. so, exactly. um, you know, some men have lost their lives. Um, trying to protect that member um, And my thing is I want to keep my life And we will do right. whatever is necessary Man. For me, me tell you, brother. To, uh, to continue forward With my life To continue forward
0: As Brother Richardson detailed It takes everything To win the battle for your life But he also talks about, interestingly enough, the things that we're putting inside of our bodies. And I wanted to know, I wanted to have this conversation. I had it with Dr. Batts, who was a vegan, and talked about how living a more vegan or eating a more plant-based lifestyle, plant-forward lifestyle, actually increases your ability to win battles. Win battles that'll actually let you live longer. But what do you eat how do we make it, how do we make it taste good? I want you to go Google Turnip Vegan and you will see that this brother, social media Maven, giant, this dude has turned a vegan lifestyle into something that we all should aspire to. Turnip vegan, aka Todd Anderson comes on the show to detail that revolutionary moment in his life when he realized that being vegan was going to save him. And then how do we do it? How do we actually, how do we actually create meals and a lifestyle that is actually going to like move us into the space that I want to do this. I want to eat like this. I want to feel this good think about this as i said this on the show if turnip vegan hadn't found that lifestyle and if i hadn't found turnip vegan that day who knows how many people would have wouldn't have been impacted but he made the choice and his choice and his revolution is impacting millions of people every day take a listen this is challenging, right? You said this This was challenging in the beginning. Mm-hmm. If I am if someone looking to move into this space, right, to move into creating a more plant-based lifestyle, what do you recommend that we do? Good question. Uh, like I said earlier, we're all different.
7: Um, my approach to veganism was all or nothing. And so I jumped in and that was it. I was ready to, not ready to go, but I, it was cold turkey. I met a lot of people that are not open for cold turkey or that's not the right path for them. I know people that have taken their their steps there. For example, when I first went vegan, it was during Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> you got Thanksgiving and Christmas around the corner. And I remember going to my family's house and that same scenario of not having nothing to eat. But I remember just having some small conversations with my family and they're looking at me strange. Like, what is he going through? What phase is this? And you know, but they were kind to me and didn't, you know, make me feel bad. But I wanted them to change, but I had patience with them. And now fast forward to, you know, five years ago, without me having the pressure, my mom is, is eating plant-based right now.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. You
7: know, my mom is like calling me and, and asking me about recipes, giving me tips on how to turn something, you know, that we use to make vegan. And so um, my advice is take your time, be kind to yourself. And I recommend you find, you know, whatever your number one or number two dishes, try to veganize that. And if you're not open to cooking, um, you know, then try to find a restaurant or try to find an outlet so you could just start the change process in your mind. Cause like I said, seven, eight years ago, that seed was planted with me. I didn't go vegan right then, but I tried the food and I remember walking away, having a roadblock, being like, "Oh, this is vegan, <laughs> it's not that bad. It wasn't that bad." My my nephew, I invited him over not too long ago, and I'm like, "Hey, man, I made this vegan chili." I shouldn't have said vegan, because his eyes cringed right away, and that changed the way that the food probably tastes, you know. And so I just say, you know, be open minded to that seed being planted. So if that's You know, doing meatless Mondays once a week. If that's just trying to figure out what, you know, you can eat veganism, just start working on planting that seed and doing what's best for you. But just know, we live in a time right now that it's not that difficult. Five, six years ago, it was a lot more difficult. Like I had to do everything from scratch, you know, and now you have, you know, a lot of options at the grocery store to help you carry through that that process. But just take your time, you know, find out, you know, your favorite meals and test the waters and, you know, figure out, you know, how to move forward from there.
0: Yeah. Don't protect yourself. Have patience. That's the thing. I, I get frustrated as, as I'm moving through my, my, my plant-based journey mm-hmm. and you know, my life is, my life is hectic. We talk, I talk about that at length, you know, there, there can be five to six different variables moving in, in at one time in my life between my mom and my dad, my, you know, this, uh, my job at Camelback Ventures running a truck, you know, r- r- being, being somewhat of an athlete, uh, you know, and then mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And so, I look, I'm always trying to figure out more efficient ways to cook. And so it's been, it it previously has been easy. Give me a protein, chicken, beef, or turkey, and let me throw some vegetables or whatever. Now it's figuring, you know, it's a mindset shift, right? That there are other proteins that I can bring in. Like shifting the mindset that a meat protein is the only protein source. No, you eat up, you you drink a plant-based protein source every day, twice a day. You can find other ways to eat this, and so right now my go-to has been Brussels sprouts and, and kale with a little uh, um, Trader Joe's Green Goddess uh, Green Goddess dressing. Um,
8: cool. <laughs> man, it,
0: look, look. Let me tell you something, Turner. The air fryer is my friend right? As, as I move through this vegan journey, right? The air fryer has my friend. Uh, I've done air fryer tofu. I've done air fryer um, tempeh, which I don't like. I'm like, nah, the tempeh on the air fryer is not, it's not that good. Um, but the air fryer tofu, I'm going to try some seitan this weekend, uh, some different things. One of the things revolutionaries is I want you to do, I keep saying, go to Turnip Vegan on YouTube. This brother has amazing videos. Go ahead, brother.
7: Look, and so, to back up a little bit, one more thing that really helped. So keep in mind, it's a mindset. It's, it's all mindset. Uh, one thing that helped me kind of start changing my mindset is understanding that the food that we love is because the flavor and texture. Yeah. So I started thinking to myself, I was like, now, would I just eat, like, like would I just grab a steak, you know what I mean, and cook it and just eat it by itself when I was not vegan? Probably not, because the flavor comes from the spices and herbs, Mm -hmm. you know. And so once I started realizing like the flavors that we crave, and you know the textures can be replicated, that started like okay, I could ditch this. Like I don't necessarily need that. And so um, I just wanted to point that out. It's it's if you can understand how to create flavor and texture, yeah. You will start your you start the road to your journey a lot quicker, and that's where I'm at right now. It's uh, when I first went vegan, um, I ate a lot of mock meat, I ate a, a lot of uh, processed vegan food, and I had a friend tell me that was vegan at that time. He's like, "You're going to change your your mindset is going to grow from there." And I just looked at him, I didn't understand it. Now, fast forward to today, I don't eat that much mock meat. I'm not against it, but my body just craves more whole foods. I I create more, you know, juices and and things like that, and so it's just a process that we got to be patient with as we grow and allow our minds to reshape something that's been shaped it for me for forty years, and some of us for you know shorter or longer, but just gotta have patience with yourself. This is it's not it's not like you're just changing your shoes and you're changing something you've been doing your whole life, your whole life.
0: The incomparable Reggie Hubbard former White House luminary turned yoga aficionado comes on the show to talk about his journey from from burnout to enlightenment. We've talked so much on the show about what it means to be revolutionary with your health. But what does it mean to take care of your mind, right? Thinking about this from self-care to soul care, right? From taking care of your heart, to putting the right things in your body. But what happens when we don't feed our minds? Reggie talks about that, but then he reverses it and says, what yoga and meditation can do for you will complete you. <laughs> it completes you. Think about this. As, as he said, this new word of mine, his pithy answer. Right? Pithy, go Google that. His pithy answer is to normalize health and well being for folks that look like you and me. You will be inspired and motivated to sit and cross your legs or find a studio that is going to allow you to practice, practice, practice on being the best version of yourself.
9: I'm the most unlikely yoga teacher. I'm the most unlikely Buddhist <laughs> practitioner um, in the world, right? You know what I mean? Like, I uh, I am... If you look up overachiever in the dictionary, it's like me with, like, in a b-boy stance. You know what I'm saying? Like, first in my family to go to college. I didn't just go to college. I went to Yale. I have a master's degree in international strategy from a European school, like, in Belgium, like, as a black dude. Like, um, and, like, the addiction to proving myself in a system that sought to destroy me was killing me man mm. it was killing me you know what i mean i worked at the height of politics man i've been on air force too like i've been in, i've done all this stuff and i did it working 18 hour days sleeping four hours a night mm. you know what i mean and just grinding we glamorize the grind culture you know what grind makes you grind turns you into dust dust oh say say that again say that again we glamorize grind culture when grinding only turns you into dust like we are spirit we are not dust you know Mm. you know we're made of the same thing as like universal energy you know what i mean and in fact most wisdom most indigenous wisdom traditions have been appropriated by white people it's ours like buddha was brown yoga was originated in africa and india You know what I mean? So these wisdom traditions that I espouse and live by are ours. And like they empower us to be in touch with spirit, which is our divine birthright. But I didn't know that at first. Right. So I work these 18 hour days and I made it to the top. um, But I've been giving um, lectures recently. And so I I give didactic, but I also show pictures like there are pictures of me in like, you know, thousand dollars, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars suits like with (laughs) all these people. But you look at my face and I look miserable. Mm. Right, so like you know, the the Bible says that what does it profit a of man to gain the world and lose his soul? you know what I mean and so like for me I had to get up off that right and so about in 2013 I was about 330 pounds um, miserable and was just like in a cycle of self destruction and self loathing um, because things weren't going my way in my job search and so in retrospect that was ancestors and spirit being like yo you need to do this like we're not going to give you what you ask for until you do what you need to do for you and what I needed to do for me was make my health and well-being sacred and right and so in 2013 like I was teaching a bunch of kids um civics it was the only job I could get um, with a master's degree and an Ivy League degree was as a um, part-time civics teacher and I respect that and love that because it made me humble um, mm-hmm. and it made yeah. me respect what I needed to do for me internally in order to manifest externally and so like I did that um, took the job and these kids wanted to do something on health and well-being and brother Charles man I was salty son I was just like I don't want to do no damn project on well-being it's a civics thing we talk talking about revolution here man let's talk about like changing the paradigm blah, blah, blah. Right. So and these kids weren't having it. And then I had to like check myself a bit. I was like, yo, Reggie, how are you going to be a teacher that is like raining on the parade of kids like, like that's awful. And so I, like, I had to check myself a bit. And Charles, like their um, fervent desire to do this well-being thing. Stuck with me Um, because I had to. I was like, yo, why did you have such an adverse reaction when these kids wanted to talk about taking care of themselves? So I had to address like the decades of grind culture, the decades of self-loathing, the decades of putting my health on the shelf. In service to to like norms that I was never like to, to asymptotes I was never going to achieve, right? And so like when I began to make my health and well being foundational, it's as if like the universe was like welcome, right? And welcome. so like mm. that commitment at 330, or 330 pounds. Like I took a raw vegan diet um, for six months just to clear. I was like, yo, I've got to like make a sever these horrible habits and start something new fresh. And so I did a six-month vegan cleanse um, in 2013, which begat my yoga practice, which begat my meditation practice, which has now allowed me to be what I've become.
0: Mm. Brother, I, I love that because there's, there's, there's always this... Impetus for a revolution. Yeah, right? there's, there's always, and I, I, I will, I will always be thankful of Elijah Moses, a good friend, CEO of Wise Young Builders in DC. Uh, mm-hmm. I, know you're, look, I know you. Look, I know that you're around the area, good brother. But he says, when you answer and ask and answer that question, "What's your revolution?" You have to decide. I need what you need to revolt from, and what you need to evolve. Into. For sure. Yeah. And that's what you think, right? It sounds like, you know, our our revolutions are similar because it was my kids at Green Run High School that was the impetus for this revolution, right? Or or parts of a revolution long time ago because they were the ones who, like, look, we need someone bigger for us out there in the world. You know, like, you just can't just sit here and just teach us. There's something more. And it sounds like, it sounds like your kids were doing the same thing for you. They were like, Hey, yo, this civics is cool, but we look, you know, especially if you look, look in the way that our kids, right. They're going through yeah. so much. We, we need this, right. We yeah. need this. So 330 pounds, right. All of a sudden now raw vegan diet. What brings yoga into the practice, right. And then what does it, what does this long-term practice do for you? Right. Yeah.
9: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We'll start there. Exactly. So the vegan cleanse, my brother, uh, my godbrother, bought me some new balance kicks. So I started running and walking and doing all this other stuff, just getting into it. Right. And I noticed like the accumulated mental habits of self-destruction over the course of my diet. Right. So diet opens like how you feed yourself is how you fuel yourself Mm -hmm. and like how i noticed that not only was i fueling myself with like too much sugar and like processed food and those sorts of things i was fueling myself in my mind with a whole bunch of like self-loathing and like self-destructive behavior and so like in the process of deconstructing that um i was uh basically humbled and realized that I needed to, to love myself more and so it, it began with uh I was I had a really I made it to the height of politics and I but I didn't make it as high as I could because of the color of my skin and I also beyond beyond that I also think that it wasn't my time you know now that I've gotten more spiritual some things ain't as racist as you think they are they're just not yours. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, cause my grandmother, rest her soul, used to always say, "Baby, you gonna get yours." Like, if you have faith and, and purpose, what's yours is yours, and can't nobody take that from you. So, perhaps what I was pursuing wasn't mine. It was a avenue to get me to where I'm at. So, here's right, what I mean okay. by that: I um I thought that I there was a place for an Ivy League educated brother in the Obama administration. Um, there were. It just wasn't me. Right, and so like I, w- I had gone in and out. I was on the blacklist at one point, um, and made my way into a point where I was up for contention to be either deputy assistant secretary of international education or uh, deputy chief of staff of the Department of Education. Charles, I made it to the top two for both of those jobs, got neither one. Mm. That's like proposing to somebody and they say no. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? I gotta leave. I can't be in town no more, yo. Like, ah, damn, right, <laughs> damn, right. So um, that heartbreak um, allowed me. So I, I was just floored, right? I was just like, I, I pushed it all. You know, I went all in, lost the hand, right? And so, but here's what I gained. I gained heartbreak. And I gained heartbreak in the new me that was emerging from my commitment to well-being. And that allowed me to see that it wasn't meant for me to do that, right? And so I had to sit with myself and figure out what that was. So I made rules. I was like, okay, I'm only going to do things that lower my, I had a checklist. If it lowers my blood pressure, it's artsy, and something I've never done before, that's what I'll do it. it. And I lived that for like months. And so I spent a lot of time At the Hirshhorn Museum in downtown D.C. There was a Dali exhibit there So I spent a lot of time just looking at art um, I would just look at sunsets I would write in my journal and all this sort other of stuff And someone comes up to me and is like You should come practice yoga with me Practice yoga, practice with, yoga, with, me. yoga with me Practice yoga practice with me. me
0: My dude Julian Gordon Comes on the show To talk about How we can build wealth And we've talked about this so much, my my homie, my sis, Kelly Saulny came on in 2021 to talk about creating generational wealth. But how do we do that? There's so many mechanisms out there that will allow us to create wealth, but sometimes we don't know the strategy. Sometimes we don't know the midwife that's out there that's going to help us move the needle in our lives so that bank account can grow, the assets can grow, so we can move into the next stratosphere, so we can actually pass Wealth down to our people. Julian Gordon, Mr. Multifamily comes on the show to talk about what it means to buy that first multifamily property and how to do it and what it means, right, to move forward in creating wealth, using real estate as a vehicle, as a vehicle. And I know, I know real estate has been good to me. Using it as a means To find a way out of the game. If you need a strategy, if you need a way out, this is it. This is your way out.
10: My revolution is... um it's the multi-family movement and it's uh helping people recognize that they are children of god and that abundance is their birthright um and i do that through the multi-family movement multi-family movement obviously uh initially and on the surface it looks like it's uh, about helping people acquire real estate and that is the first step um my beginning work when i stepped into my purpose was i was actually my superhero name was purpose finder before it was multi-family uh, mr multi-family and i was helping people find their purpose in my living room by facilitating workshops in my living room. And I was great at it. And um, once people were clear on why they were here, the biggest difficulty that they had was how to monetize that purpose, right? How to make a living doing it. And so while people knew their purpose all of a sudden, um, uh, it was already within them. I was just there to draw it out and take them through a process to draw it out. Um, they were wondering how to make it manifest it uh, financially. And so that led to me teaching entrepreneurship. But one of the major, major things that freed me up to walk in my God-given purpose every single day was... Um, uh, multi-family real estate because I was living in Brooklyn and you know rents are expensive in Brooklyn and uh, I saw an opportunity to buy a triplex in Brooklyn in May of 2013 so I bought that triplex and immediately I went from paying expensive rent in Brooklyn to now being paid expensive rent in Brooklyn yeah. right I went from $1,500 a month going out of my pocket to somebody else who now was re- living for free and receiving $3,000 from two additional units, which then went to partially pay the mortgage. And then the other was just pocket. So now my biggest expense, the biggest expense that all all of us will have throughout our lives is housing. It's only three ways to live free forever, live in a tent, go to jail or buy multifamily real estate. Wow. Right. Wow. And so, um, so that property literally changed the financial trajectory of my life. And, but not just the financial trajectory, it gave me breathing room, right. to, Uh, not have to be in this endless pursuit of money and just try to stack up this big pile gave me breathing room because my, uh, my monthly overhead was a lot lower to actually just sit with my creator and really give this seed that was inside of me my purpose, my revolution, time to unfold right? Because the revolutions, they don't just happen just like that. They take time to unfold and build up. And so by getting rid of my biggest expense, which is housing, and it actually paying me and bringing income, my housing, bringing income in, that changed everything for me. And so while I was in entrepreneurship, I was teaching, uh, I was speaking at colleges and companies. uh, The biggest curiosity that people had was how are you, you keep posting these, every now and again, you keep posting these new properties that you're buying. How are you doing this? Right. And so um, that was the number one question that I got, not how to be become a uh, public speaker, not how to do consulting for companies, not how to speak at colleges. It was, how are you buying these properties? And so um, I was just listening to what my audience was uh, asking about. And in July 2019, I, I launched the multifamily movement. And uh, I helped one family, the Royal family, close on a multifamily in uh, Los Angeles. They went through the NACA program, which is uh, no down payment, no closing costs, and uh, no credit score consideration. So for people who think that, oh, I don't have any money saved, or my credit is bad, I can't get into real estate, it's not true. There's a program out there called NACA, N-A-C-A dot com, um, where you can overcome those obstacles and still get into the game. So they closed on their first uh, multifamily uh, fourplex near USC, and um, that property is appreciated like crazy. And so once I worked with them one-on-one and i was like oh i gotta get this message to as many people as possible Mm -hmm. and um and uh because now it wasn't me just doing it for myself it was me being able to do it and demonstrate it to someone uh, to other people and so uh i launched the multi-family movement and to date We've helped 275 people close on multifamily homes all across the country, um, bought about $85 million worth of real estate collectively. Yeah. So um, our focus was my when I started, my focus was to reach 300 because that's how many people Harriet Tubman freed over the course of a decade by making 19 trips below the Mason-Dixon line. Um, And uh, we're at 275 right now. And I'm just so I like, you know, to go from that one family to now being in 275, literally, when I go into the Facebook group, like, Every day, there's a new closing now. Um, and our rate of closing is just accelerating right. accelerating and accelerating. And so this has become a movement beyond me. Um, the students are self-organizing and having market meetups in their markets. So they meet up, they go look at properties whole together, revolution. et cetera. That's whole so, yeah, revolution. so it's beyond me. It's beyond me. I'm the initiator. And I think that's really what's key to a revolution is like I'm the initiator. But this revolution does not depend solely on. Me, right? I'm a leader who, and what great leaders do is they create more leaders. And so um, I've been able to create more leaders, and it's just it'd be so beautiful to see this unfolding. And so, what I've come to in the past few months is the recognition that the multifamily movement is not uh, about real estate, the multifamily movement is multiple families coming together to create regenerational wealth and enter the mm-hmm. asset class. And the first asset that we were seeking to acquire together is multifamily real estate, but we will acquire more assets together, but not just for the sake of having more, we are acquiring those assets to give us the freedom we need to be able to walk in our God given purpose every single day. So it actually ties back into my initial work of helping people find their purpose, but what stops people from finding their purpose is finances and not having the time. So if I can get people to time freedom by getting rid of their biggest housing, uh, their biggest expense in life which is housing is greater than taxes um then that frees them up to do what they are called to do and now we have a community of people who are all walking in their god-given purpose without money ever being a worry or an issue that's what it means to be childlike children don't think about money children don't think about money about money
0: in one of my favorite episodes of the year (laughs) my sis one of the most beautiful queens that you will ever meet in this world. Let me say that out loud right now. One of the most beautiful queens that you will ever meet in this world, Miss Kashana Palmer, comes on to laugh with me, to love on me, to give us as men what we need to actually show up better. How do we find and build And actually sustain loving and intimate relationships. Kiana drops a masterclass on how we should show up as men. And I understand how we show up as men in relationships. All kinds of relationships. This is one of the episodes that you will be like, damn, this is good. This is the episode that you should with your girls, with your boys. This is the episode that you sit around and talk about and saying, hmm, let me see how my people feel about this. Let me internalize what Charles and Kashana are talking about. How do I show up better? How do I show up better? How do I show up better so that I can love and be loved? This episode, this clip with Kashana is a game changer. Intimacy is 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 so much greater than yeah. like yeah. the the physical aspects of just having sex, right? Yeah. And so I have been really trying to cultivate intimate relationships. And that's been different and it's been hard because I've been I've moved in the world a different way, right? You know, Corporu, as we'll call him, not Charles, or Doctor Corporu. Corpru has <laughs> moved in the world a whole different way, and at this at this stage of life, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't, you know, the the excitement just doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't get me there anymore. And so, yeah. I, I I guess my hypothesis is that it has been hard, right? It may have been hard because brothers are like, well, I don't know how to be. I, we're not taught, right, as we go how, how we to be friends with a woman because you know, women are beautiful, you know, people are, people are beautiful. Keep it equitable here on the show. Um, and how do we do that? And I was actually actually thinking about that because I I met a woman a couple months ago and I was like, she would be a really good friend. And how do I move past? Like, maybe I don't want to date, but I would love to be friends with you. How do you, how do you do that? So that's an interesting piece in saying that. And, you know, and, and, and friends, like I do for my friends, like my boys. Like, I sent my boy, I, I, I found some stuff. Yeah.
11: That was my point. So, to me, to answer your question quite plainly, you name it and have the conversation. Right. Right. I think that the challenge that I run into is that we revert back to junior high school. Mm-hmm. We were just awkward and bumping into each other. Sadie, you know, Sadie Hawkins dancing. It you don't know what to say. You're looking down at your pants. I'm looking down at a I'm looking at your pants too. Like, you know, there's an opportunity for us to say, like, what would that look like for you? What does friendship for me look like? This with my longtime friends. Is that something that makes you comfortable? Do you feel like you could get that way? What kind of friendship experiences have you had? And what do you think would get in the way? Like, I would have hella respect for someone who approached me that way. Does it mean that I may not be attracted to them? No, we are sexual beings, right? But we're adults. So you also get to decide how you act on that. And so I think one of the things that's important about what you said about um, intimate relationships is that we have been a one trick pony on intimacy for a long time, right? So asking, me asking a man to step outside of what he understands You know I'm gonna put it on you, girl. (laughs) You don't want no corporate. You don't want. You don't. You don't want that swagger, okay? (laughs) I'm like, I would like Charles, please. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Um, That we're allowed to get to have that connection, and actually, that connection to me is more attractive. Also, a little more dangerous because it mimics the like. Oh, we could be together because we connect on so many levels. And so, also to me, that is a very precious. Way that you would want to move in the world if you decide that you want to have those types of just you know intimate relations that are not sexual because they're to me much more potent, you know.
0: There's a delicate dance. I'm, I'm thinking about a friendship that I have. Like, there's a delicate dance. Beautiful, 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 sister. Like, you know. And but it's it's interesting that I you know as we try to build a friendship, like having that conversation like what does it look like to be your friend and not in what does it look like to be your friend and not your lover at this at this juncture yeah right yeah it, it, yeah it, exactly and i often think and you can tell me if i'm wrong and I, i'll take often out i think that as we get Older, the friend, like you said, it's a, it's a, it can be dangerous if you if you move in the wrong direction. But it also can be a positive if you're building a friendship first. Like right. what is what what does that look like? And asking that, I think that's a relationship thing. What does it look like to be your friend? Because for, you know, friendship is intimate. In in a certain way. Right. I I talk to my, you know, my, my best friend and I, we talk every Wednesday, you know, Dr. Elijah Beatty. And we have intimate conversation, right. About marriage, about relationships, about Pelotoning, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, look, all the things those are intimate conversations between two men and we have been friends since 2005 so that's you know almost 20 years of friendship that we have and thinking about this as as you're entering into a a relationship with someone who might be a romantic partner you don't know yeah you know for me and i'll only speak for me i have just like ooh, let me just jump in and the the, and, and i'll be honest this is my show the gauge has been well how good is the
11: sex Right, and you're like, could be trash. Could be awesome. Right. Unless, uh, there's few occasions in which you can't get better, okay? I just want to say, just sometimes it's equipment, sometimes it's will, sometimes it's skill. Although I think skill can be improved, but will cannot. You know, it's a conversation. But I think that that notwithstanding, like, you've got to be able to have those conversations. So I'll give you an example. So my style when I date is we have hard conversations early, mm. first date, second date, hard. Like I'm understand, I'm trying to understand your faith walk. I'm trying to understand how your family is down. I'm trying to understand where your mama and them. I'm trying to understand your relationships. And if you are run off by this conversation, then I would like to bless you and release you because hello, have you met me? I'm very verbose. This is about to be your life friend. Like if you're not ready for 1,245 repeating questions and deep conversations and plus one and on on a you're going to need a man cave living with me. And I would like to invite you to one because I don't want you around all the time. That's a different thing. Different thing. Meet me at the dinner table.
0: Exactly. 7, 7 p.m. And then, and then the boom, and go back. <laughs> right.
11: Peace. But I like to go Please. See you later. See you tonight. You know, um, but I like to go deep because I feel like when you have deep conversations about things that really matter to you early, you don't have the emotional investment to have like the like dance around don't know exactly what you want to say don't want to hurt your feelings don't know how it's going to land i still like you sleeping together's real good i don't want to mess it up like you don't have any of that stuff going on right so you get to just be yourself
0: being your authentic self in a relationship is it's i'll equate it to like like warm water, like ocean water, like 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 think think of, like think of the Dominican Republic, you know, in in, in May that 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 warm bathing water when you get in and you're like oh, this just just feels amazing and Kishana, I'll say this because you know as, as I wrestle with how to show up. Right And you know And and saying the word Like I said earlier Like being able to say Babe I feel safe with you
8: Yeah Yeah.
0: And I've been I've been wrestling with that Because That's my own stuff About being being a man Being a man Being a man To end our journey I think about Who would be the person That I would want At the end of the show To really Knock us out To really say Hmm hmm, yeah, let me think about that. This sister, this full professor of medicine at the University of Miami, world-renowned HIV researcher and practitioner, the author of Sex in South Beach, Dr. Sanjaya Kenya, comes on the show and literally... Turns me on because we have this riveting, and when I say turns me on, turns me on mentally, has me thinking about how do we have good sex? And who else would you ask but one of the country's best known sexologists? Dr. Kenyon comes on and really details how we as people can love and have more intimate, loving sexual relationships and it's important because why is that a revolution? because studies show that not everybody is having good sex and we're thinking about this from a health context as we've talked about everything on this show from mental to physical to emotional to social having great sex allows us to show up in the world better it makes us healthier it makes us happier Dr. Kenya gives us the roadmap. What is great sex, right? How is there a definition? Is there a universal definition? And I, I know the answer to this, but I want my listeners, right? I want to hear what, what Dr. Sanjaya has to say this, right? What is great sex and can I have great sex tonight?
1: Good question. That's the first thing I want to say. I do think great sex is different for everyone. If you want a, um, a general definition, I would say very similar something that makes you want to do it again Mm, right because and can you have it tonight that depends do you know this person if it's someone who you've (laughs) never met before i don't know you know what i'm saying you might want to swing from the chandeliers you know and they got a bad back you know i don't you know we don't i don't know and they might you might you know there's a lot of Rules. Um, I like to use little things for people to remember. I've had a lot of clients, they female clients, who are frustrated because a man won't perform oral sex, and I'm like, look, not good enough for your lips, not good enough for your dick. I mean, that's you know, you got to remember, and I think that you need to go down there, men. You should be going down there to investigate and to smell and to see what you're putting your most precious parts inside of. Um, so I think. When you're not worried, I guess that's actually a great definition that I've often used. When you're under someone... Or you're on top of someone, and you're not worried. You're not worried about, am I going to get pregnant? Am I going to get a disease? Are they going to call me in the morning? You're not worried about these things because you know the situation. You've already discussed these things ahead of time. No, you're not going to call me in the morning because I don't ever want to see your ass again. You know, I'm not <laughs> saying that, but or you are going. You already know that. You already know that we're protected. That we're not going to contract a disease unless you're trying to get pregnant. You already know the other person is also cognizant that we're not trying to get pregnant, and we've taken protection against any unwanted sexual consequences and therefore we can let our minds go And just Mm. get into our bodies and be fully present in the experience. And I think when our brains are moving, and this is a big difference between men and women, as you know, as a psychologist, when our brains are moving, it's very distracting. But the other thing is men, you know, their corpus callosum, which carries their thoughts through their brain, men, it's a very narrow pathway. What I like to describe it as, think of a a very, very small town that doesn't even have a mayor, and there's like a one-way road, it doesn't even have streetlights, like there's just a one-way road. So that's a man's brain, it's just very, very focused on a singular thing. And that singular focus combined with male testosterone leads to men often being more open to engaging in sexual experiences than women, our corpus callosum is very wide. I like to think of it, you know, I'm here in Miami, so I-95, that's our big highway. I'm like, it's I-95 at rush hour, two lanes, rush hour traffic went both ways. So if a woman is thinking about, oh my God, are the dishes done? Is my work project done? Or whatever the kids in bed, did I do that? Did I order this? If a woman's thinking about those things, it's impossible for her to have really her ultimate sexual experiences. So I often advise men, you know, get those dishes done done, hire that sitter, you know, make sure it's not when she has a deadline at work. Um, So I think great sex is when you're not worried at all and when you want to do it again. And I, I put that there because you don't always have an orgasm during sex, but it doesn't mean you don't want to do it again
0: so much so much man this is just like it is like i'm just sitting at the at the buffet getting so so much one of the things that comes comes out of this and what you're saying to me and something that i've talked about on the show a lot right and we don't talk about this a lot with about men but it is it is still something this feeling of safety right and particularly as you know particularly as you get older i understand some of the risky things that i did when i was younger um middle age um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> right but f- I, I'll just I won't talk about anybody else and I, I don't like to do that doug but I, I think for me now like you said is like not having the worry and that worry not and not having the worry is me feeling safe and I think there are other men we don't say the word safety in conjunction with masculinity and men a lot right we, we, when we think when we tend to think of safety we talk about women and them feeling safe. I'm gonna I'm gonna step out and say men also need to feel safe, right? Um, and that is something that we just haven't said so much, but I know for me like in in a sexual experience, I I don't want to worry. I don't and there are lot there are 10, 12, 20, a thousand different things that I'm thinking about before the sexual encounter things that I had never even thought about before having sex these days. and I'm like, oh wow. and so, you are right. I don't want to worry. And so um, to make them feel safe and, and and anyone needs to feel safe. Women needs to feel safe to, that they can explore and be themselves and they want to hang from the chandeliers or they they want to have trapeze or they just want to be, you know, hey, I want to lay on my back and do you, you know, whatever it is, people need to feel safe. Um I want to talk about something with you because it, it it comes up because I I I've met people who are in the lifestyle and we'll call it the the, the lifestyle people who have who are polyamorous who you know um, are into BDSM and it, it is really interesting because I often feel like uh, it's characterized as something that is way out but I feel like it's making itself more into mainstream conversation more into mainstream society. How do we have more and more conversations about polyamory and BDSM or or different facets of sex that might pleasure people without ostracizing them? All right. Because typically, what I feel like is these conversations come from men, and that if women talk about them or express this to men, they're like, wait, hold on. Or so, how does that happen in a healthy way? And how can we engage in polyamory or different sexual experiences without the shame, without the, the stigma, but with enjoyment?
1: Very, very, very good questions. Again, and this is the last time I'm going to say, listen to that podcast. But the Sex and South Beach podcast, like we have America's top fetishes. We talk about role-playing and we talk about, and the reason, one of a main reason that I do this show is so people will listen to it with their partner and then they're now engaged in a conversation and I've done the hard work of initiating it because what you said, it is very challenging to bring up these things and what's when's the right time? You definitely don't want to do it during sex. Um, One thing that I do, which probably isn't accessible to everyone, like I went to a dinner party on Friday night, you know, my girlfriend introduces me. And the first question I'll ask is I will talk because I am in, I'm back into a writing mode. So I'm writing some things around this concept of married-ish now. And I'm asking people, what could you be in a great relationship where everything is great, you guys have similar values, you know, world ideals. Um, your money situation is right. You're both evolving in in, in complementary directions. Everything's great. And your partner asks, you know, I I don't know if I want to step out and try something else. And I don't know. And if I were to do that, that I wouldn't want it to limit our relationship and I don't wanna end our relationship in any way, but I think I wanna take a look or I think I wanna go to this maybe swingers club, Club Velvet or something, that's one here in Miami. I think, would you come with me or would you not come with me depending on what you're getting into? And um, I think that um, it's critically, critically important to find a way to have those conversations with your primary partner before you make any behavioral changes. And Mm. if you are the person on the receiving end, the first thing you want to not do, you don't want to shut it down. No, don't talk about that with me because that just means someone's going to do it and hide it from you. And if you're talking about true, genuine intimacy, you really want to be no one for risk and safety. You want to know what your partner's up to, but also... All of us want to feel accepted for just who we are. I know I have a lot of imperfections, a lot. Like, I know, but it's got to be okay that sometimes she goes on a tangent and she talks a lot about different things and, you know, merges 12 points into one sentence or something like that. And (laughs) it's got to be okay that she gets up at five in the morning and works out, even though I hate when, you know, she, you know, gets out of the bed and messes it up and it wakes me up. Certain things have to, we all want to feel accepted just for our good parts and our weaknesses. And I think when we shut people down, one, it creates this culture of secrecy. And I know that we're, we're both, both you and I work in a predominantly heterosexual space. Um, Although I do do a lot of work with the LGBT community. Um, However, most of my work is with the heterosexual population. But I think that um, we, we, we want to know one what our partners up to, and um, I'm going to try to finish my train of thought because this is my this is my weakness of going into too many directions. But normally it'll come That's back, okay. and it's also a weakness of this virtual thing. I'm much better live. Just you know, I never forget I what I'm saying in live. I, I bet. But, I bet. Um. Um, that's what this married book is about, but it is, in, how do we engage in these conversations and in these without getting shut down because divorce rates are 50% or more and they're going up and down, but they've always stayed around 50%. That's because marriage was created by a monks. The whole thing of marriage mm-hmm. was created by, um, sexless monks who never dated anyone. And they're the ones who decided that you could only have sex inside of a marriage or else it's a sin. And somehow they have been very successful in convincing society of that since, you know, the the Middle Ages, which is a completely ridiculous thing that the first person you have sex with is also going to be the last person that you have sex
0: right, with. Right, right.
1: So yeah. I think... Um,
0: remember the first person i had sex with
1: actually i can't but and see girls i hope there's some young women listening i told you he don't even remember your name see i told you i,
0: I, won't, I won't say your name i remember exactly where I it told was
8: you.
0: <laughs> i hope that you have enjoyed this best of year five with me the people that we have chosen not only represent The best of the revolutions, but the best of the people of of who we are. They are people who are out in the world making change. Everyone who's ever been on this show is out in the world making change. And that is why they have elegantly answered what we think is the most thought-provoking question of one's life. What's your revolution? And these clips, these short clips illuminate who they are and why they do these amazing things in the world we are better because of them this show is better because of them we look forward we look forward to year 6 and more guests and more opportunities to hear what people are doing what revolutions they are creating what people they are impacting in the world I can't wait. I can't wait to hear all of the goodness that comes out of these conversations. And again, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your support, your love, your kindness, everything that you've done to make this show at six, one of the most listened to shows in the world. Thank you for your revolutions. Thank you for being revolutionary. I love you. I love you. I love you. Peace. Peace.
8: Peace. Revolution.
0: Once again, we want to thank our sponsor for the show, Scotch Porter. Please remember that you can save 25% off of any order, $40 or more, through March 31st, 2023. Spring is coming, and it's time to revolutionize your hair and skin. You know that we love you, and we're here with you. We'll see you soon. Peace. What's good, revolutionaries?